You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We mentioned it earlier, but I want to dive in a little bit more to the Drew Brees injury um, and and how it's going to affect the Saints. We saw Winston come in, of course, Taysom Hill on that roster as well. Adam Schefter, our ESPN NFL insider, was on NFL Live today and broke down the injury and just what it means. He's going to miss some time here. The question is, how much? Dan Graziano said a short time ago that the initial estimates could be two to three weeks, maybe longer, depending on this injury. But you've got three fractured ribs on the left side. You've got two fractured ribs on the right side. You've got a collapsed lung at this point in time. That's a lot of injuries for an older quarterback to get through at this point in time. And so for the time being, Sean Payton does not want to identify who's going to start in Breeze's place. But think of it this way. When Breeze went out of the game yesterday, when he was having a hard time breathing, they turned to Jameis Winston. You'd have to imagine they do the same thing this week against Atlanta because they value Taysom Hill as a playmaker, a catcher, a runner, a receiver, somebody who can play on special teams. And so that may be the arrangement for this team for the foreseeable future. Fantastic stuff from Schefter. But Fitz, I think let's bring in another expert to give us a little bit of insight on what this means for the Saints. Let's head over to the Shell Penzo Performance Line where we're joined by ESPN NFL analyst Dan Orlovsky. So, Dan, i got to talk to a quarterback whenever these things happen. So, when you look at the Saints without Drew Brees, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Worry. You know, if you you watch the Saints offense, the reason why it's been so great and even kind of kept up a 30-point-per-game average this year without Michael Thomas was because Drew operates it so well. It's... It's a complete control of their offense. He gets the ball out of his hands. He never hurts the football team. It's very much so understanding of like being completion and first down driven, right? He, he gets the ball out to his playmakers in space. And now if he's going to be out, which it seems for a certain amount of time, Jameis is going to have to play. That's not Jameis's game. You know, Jameis's game is not get the ball out quickly, distribute the football like a point guard, so to speak, and allow Michael Thomas to work and Alvin Kamara to work in space. Jameis is more like push the ball downfield type of quarterback. So, you know, if you go back to last year, which everyone's going to point to with Teddy Bridgewater and how they went 5-0 and without Drew and whatnot, that's because Teddy's a very similar style player to Drew. Teddy is get the ball out quick and runners catches, all that stuff. And so it's going to be really interesting to watch how Sean Payton can kind of craft his offense to, you know, be productive and be efficient and score points with a very different style of quarterback at play. And so I just get worried. Is that going to happen quickly enough for them to kind of keep pace at the top of the NFC? A lot of people will say, okay, but we were kind of worried about Bree's arm and his ability to hit the long ball. You know, you got Jameis, who I think Pablo Torre said uh, always looks like a guy who has both himself and the opposing defense in fantasy on any given week. (laughs) Um, So knowing what we know about his ability to hit those big plays, are there parts of this offense that will thrive with him in a different way? Or is it really just the optimization of, of, you know, running things smoothly that you're most concerned about that's going to override any physical ability he brings to the table? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that, yes, you can certainly say that the offense is going to have the opportunity to be more explosive. That's the one thing that has been really missing in that offense, certainly for the last year, but even so this season, is the explosive pass game. It's been much more of really efficient screens, and, uh, you know, occasional, like, play-action pass for a 15-yard chunk. So Jameis will give you the opportunity to throw the ball downfield more. But what everyone needs to realize is, is, like, football is such, especially offensive football, is such a connected game. And when you call your shot play on first down and the quarterback takes the shot and it's not necessarily there, second and ten is a very different world than second and six. 
And that sometimes becomes like mundane and boring, but it's also something that allows the coach to continue to call plays and continue to feel confident in the play that they're calling. And so you also have to look at like Drew is very, um, very protective of the football. He values the football. And so is Jameis going to do that? You know, one interception for a football team that defense, you know, is, has been susceptible this year, is going to be a big deal. And so there's so many aspects of the, just the style of play that you point to and say, can he replicate that at least somewhat close to the way Drew does it, but also add to the explosive passing game that's been missing? All right, so Dan, let's play devil's advocate on this, given the lack of preseason, the lack of training camp, and the fact that Jameis didn't necessarily get the same adjustment period he would have in a normal year. Uh, how should that factor, or should that factor into maybe playing Taysom Hill instead? No, 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 you, you play Jameis Winston. You do not play Taysom Hill, because here's the thing. If you make the decision to play Taysom Hill, your playbook significantly shrinks. It gets much smaller. Michael Thomas, can you use Michael Thomas the same way if Taysom Hill's on the field at quarterback? No. Can you use Alvin Kamara the same way when Taysom Hill's at quarterback? No. And so your two best players are now minimized with what they can do. And so you play Jameis Winston, and the big thing for Sean Payton, and Sean knows this, Sean knows quarterbacks as good as anybody in the NFL, is always call the game with the end result in mind. You know, how do we figure out a way? Like, let's let's play this hypothetical assumption game where Drew's going to miss three weeks, three games. How do they find the way to go two and one? How do they find the way against Atlanta to get to the end with the win, right? So, Jameis, do not allow Jameis to throw the game away. Don't allow Jameis to be the reason you lose the football game. How many different ways can you get the ball out of his hand and go, okay, Kamara, we paid you a ton of money. And Michael Thomas, we paid you a ton of money. And Jared Cook, we paid you a ton of money. And Emmanuel Sanders, we gave you a nice check. Like, how many different ways can you, be, can you go to those guys and be – you be the reasons we win this football game rather than Jameis being the reason you lose, but Jameis is the starter. Talking to Dan Orlovsky here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Quickly, let's get into this, what you saw from Kyler Murray and Josh Allen last night. Did they change your mind, either of them, after their performance? No, I mean, I, I love both players. You know, I think both players are on the MVP list in the top five grouping. Josh, you know, outside of two throws was, was big-time football, and he – kind of admitted that both those throws, one was a great play by Patrick Peterson, one he's just late on that crosser. But really just watching Kyler Murray, you know, Sarah, when I was watching the game yesterday, it really had my brain going back to two years ago when everyone was like, no, Arizona, there's no way that you could take a five foot ten quarterback with the number one pick in the NFL draft the year after you took a guy at quarterback at the 10th pick. Like, you just don't do that in the NFL. This kid, he's going to go want to play baseball. He'll never be able to be successful. And I'm sitting there going, here he is really a, a primetime afternoon window on Sunday playing against one of the best teams in the NFL. Like, you made the right choice, Arizona. You made the right choice, Kyler Murray. And then when that play, the Hail Mary happens, it's not a Hail Mary, by the way, but when he kind of creates his own Hail Mary, you go, that's why you took him one. Like, that's why, because he can elevate the whole organization into that moment. And so they both played awesome football. Kyler had the last kind of say, and it was a remarkable play that only – a handful of guys on planet Earth can make. All right, Dan, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Our friend, my friend Dan Orlowski, check him out on NFL Live as always. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks, guys. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. We're joined by ESPN College Basketball Insider Myron Metcalf. 
Myron, thanks so much for the time, man. We really wanted to get you on because the reports are out that the NCAA is looking at putting the March Madness tournament entirely instead of in different places like we're used to. They're going to put it in one spot in Indianapolis. So how did this decision come to be? I mean, I think that the NCAA was kind of looking at different plans and they kept talking about contingency plans. And I think they just settled on the idea that if they were going to pull this off, they had to be in one spot. Uh, I mean, the NCAA, no matter what, was going to have a tournament. You know, they lost $375 million with last year's tournament being canceled. They just can't afford for that to happen again. And I think logistically they figured they can create uh, some sort of a bubble uh, in one city with 68 teams, I say good luck with that, but, I mean, that's what they're going to try to do. I want to get back to the bubble in Indy, but let's get to the lead-up to that. How realistic is it that we'll get to March in college football? I'm thinking indoor season, mid-peak pandemic, without helmets or masks of any kind, with short, small rosters where you get a spread of a couple people and that takes a whole team out. What 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 are we doing exactly? I have the same question, Sarah. I don't know, to be honest. I, I talked to a coach uh, in the state of Michigan who told me that he is preparing for his team to play in masks. I mean, this is uh, it's going to be chaotic. Huh. Like, I think anything you've wow. seen in college football will be much worse in college basketball because at least with college football, you have the Power Five and then you have, like, three other leagues that are playing. I mean, college basketball is 32 conferences, and all but one of them, the Ivy League, is going to try to play. you got 350-plus teams. Um, and, and one positive test means you're sidelined per NCAA guidelines for two weeks. So I think you're going to see a lot of cancellations, not postponements. Forget postponements. That's not going to happen in college basketball. You lose a game, that's it. Uh, and then you're going to see a lot of just delays and just chaos as we try to get to the tournament. But I think the NCAA's message was one way or the other, whether you play 10 games or 25, we're going to get to the tournament. We're talking to Myron Metcalf, ESPN College Basketball Insider on Spain and Fitz. And you mentioned how few games, and I'm looking back at an article from September where the council came out and set the minimum number of tournament-eligible games uh, for uh, games for tournament-eligible teams, I should say, at 13. And I'm trying to figure out, Myron, like if we're realistically going to go into a bubble to play an NCAA tournament where a team will have only had to play 13 games, why have a minimum at all? Why not just bring everybody into the bubble? Well, I mean, that's the question. You know, Coach K – said, you know, that's what should happen, send everybody to the tournament. But but I honestly don't even know how you're going to get 68 teams in one location. Like, that's, right. that's a lot. And that's adding to, to, to the risk of, figure of out. COVID spread it, too, if you, if you make the numbers that high. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I think right now they have an idea and a concept. I think we're a long way from pulling it off. And here's the thing, Fitz, 13 is the minimum. But guess what? If you play fewer games, you can apply for a waiver to get in the tournament. So if you play three games – and you want to get into the tournament, your team's good enough, you can apply for a waiver to get into the field. This is going to be crazy. I don't even know how they're going to – like, how do committees do this, Sarah? I'm lost on all of it. I don't know how they're going to vote on anything. (laughs) Uh, Myra Metcalf with us here on Spain and Fitz at Metcalf by ESPN is where you can follow him on social media. Um, We saw in the lead-up to the college football season – now, keep in mind, this was kind of simultaneously going on while the NFL was trying to figure out what they were doing in the NBA and the WNBA and – all the other sports, we're, we're kind of a little deeper in now. But at the time, not only were players talking about um, civil rights issues and, and race issues and things that they felt their committee, their their um, teams needed to commit to, but also their own safety and protocols that would need to be in place. Are we hearing anything from college basketball players about what they need to know about how this season will look in order to feel safe and comfortable taking the court? You know, we're not, we're not hearing enough 
you know, college football is a little different in that you kind of get a lot of the high-profile players uh, beforehand. But college basketball, you know, coaches really kind of have taken on that, that role. I do want to hear from more players mm-hmm. and hear what they're thinking. I mean, I think a lot of these guys that I've talked to so far, they want to play. They want to get to the tournament. I mean, some of these guys have already lost an opportunity to play. They don't want to lose a second one to compete for a national championship. But I do think there are a lot of questions uh, about what safety is. What does that look like? There's so many different protocols for all these different conferences. I mean, you got schools in New Mexico thinking about moving to a different state so that they can play. I mean, you have so much chaos all over the country. But here's going to be the question for me, Sarah. If you go into this bubble in Indianapolis, according to the NCAA, you have to stay. You can't leave. So if you are Gonzaga, let's say, and you go into the bubble and you make a run to the Final Four, you are in Indianapolis for a month. Like, I don't know how that works for amateurs, honestly. Like, I don't know the legalities of that, but that oh, seems sure like something that we should school talk about. Oh, I'm sure they'll do all their schoolwork via Zoom and take <laughs> yeah. all the tests. They'll get the education that they signed up for. <laughs> this is my cool. eyes are I mean, rolling into my butt. Myron, like, I'm glad we had you on, but, like, I just want to throw my coffee across the yeah. room. Like, this is yeah. maddening to me. I mean, so, so let me ask you a, another difficult question. Let's say things go awry, and for some reason there isn't a March Madness. In a world where we're, what, a couple of days away from the NBA draft and we see guys going to play in the G League, guys going to play in Europe, guys going to get paid, like what's the lasting impact to college basketball if there is a second season of no national champion? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be a blow. I mean, I don't know how many great options you actually have before the NBA other than college basketball right now. Like to me, it's still – the best option. We'll see what happens with the G League experiment. We'll see if more guys go overseas. But I don't know that, like, the power of college basketball necessarily changes. What changes is the NCAA. Like, I don't think they can afford this. So, for me, if you lose another tournament, you are talking about a completely different NCAA, and what does that look like if they lose another $375 million? So, I think financially, that would be the biggest thing with the NCAA. College basketball, I think, would still press on and – be fine because it's so rooted in tradition. Uh, But I think overall you're going to have kids looking at their options regardless going forward. Do you want to go to college? Do you want to go to the G League? I just don't think college basketball is as necessary for top ten players anymore. ESPN College Basketball Insider Myron Metcalf with us here on Spain and Fitz. I saw in the NWSL a lot of players after their Challenge Cup tournament and before the Fall League decided to go sign with teams abroad. Um, It was a pretty big exodus, one we haven't seen the likes of before for American players. Um, But it's probably temporary, and it's probably because of the opportunities out there when they couldn't play a full real season here in the U.S. If players were allowed to travel to some of those places, I don't even know if that's the case right now, is it it too late for someone who wants to build stock for the draft to just say, I'm out of here and go try to play somewhere else where they don't have the potential risks for not only health and safety – but also for the season to just be kind of a massive cluster and not accomplish much? Yeah, I mean, I wonder how many guys would look at that option. Like maybe the top 10 guys, maybe your top 15 guys might have that. I don't know how many of them, you know, for, that would be realistic. Like to be 18 years old overseas is still uh, a major move. Like I think if you look at this draft and you look at LaMelo Ball, who did go overseas for a bit, James Wiseman played three games in college, Anthony Edwards played. A lot of people don't know much about him because he was at Georgia. I think the bigger question is, like, how much do you need college basketball? So if these top 10 or 15 guys don't have a season, how many guys will opt out to your point and just say, you know what, I don't want any part of this. Let me go and train somewhere and get ready for the draft. Like, that's the real threat, I think, for college basketball is if this thing gets crazy in the next couple months, I think you're going to see a lot of top 10, top 15 prospects say, I don't want any part of what's going on here.
Myron. Anthony Edwards, great on ER fits. Oh. <laughs> That's my well, scouting that, report. That's well played. Uh, Myron, given the fact that we, we watched conferences not play well together when it came to starting the college football season, how confident are you that they'll all be on the same page about getting college basketball underway and going? I mean, every day I get a text from a coach who's like, this is crazy. Who's in charge? Like, every day. Like, coaches will text and say, hey, who's in charge of this? So, I think that's a bad sign. Like, I, I don't know if we're going to figure this out. You got 32 conferences. You got all these coaches who have different ideas. And, and then, again, the protocols. Like, I don't think people have to understand, like, what's happening with the protocols. In California, UC Irvine could only practice with six players in the gym at a time. Each player had to have their own basket. Each player had to have their own ball and their own sanitizing station, and they couldn't pass the ball to each other per state regulations, right? Like, this thing is crazy. And I don't know how you're going to pull it off. I just know that everybody wants to get to the tournament, and that's still the goal. We'll see if it happens. You guys can follow him on Twitter, at Metcalf by ESPN. Myron, I appreciate your expertise, but you have Good made stuff. our you've made yeah. our blood boil with actual logic and reason I and information. It, I, don't that, like, yeah. I don't like the sugar coating from the people just because it pays the bills. We all know we wish it was happening in a good, positive way, but let's not let's not sugarcoat what a mess it is. Appreciate it. It is a mess. Thank you. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. There are certainly some really well put together arguments and have been all the way leading up to this season for why um, you know Harbaugh. Um, was building on a, a, a reputation for Michigan that maybe was bigger than the actual facts, right? There's so much history there. But in the years, a couple decades before him, there wasn't that much going on. It was the idea of Michigan football, and they hoped it would bring back a reality when he got there. So there were a lot of people saying the expectations were just way too high. What he's done has been impressive. I think we're kind of past that point now. Yeah, and I think you make a really good point about where expectations are. If there's a fatal flaw to Michigan as a program, it's that there are a lot of people that speak about Michigan as a program that don't really understand where the program sits now. Like if the comparison is we're going to be in the same category as Ohio State, Clemson, or Alabama, that's not the conversation you're in anymore. If you are in the next tier of the, hey, every once in a while we can jump up, surprise people, and be in contention for the national championship, Michigan can be in that conversation. The problem is everybody that's a Michigan fan seems to want to put them in the same conversation as Ohio State and what Ryan Day is now continuing there. And that's just not where the program sits. So if everybody could sort of come to peace with that, I think there'd be less chatter about Jim Harbaugh. Yeah. And in recent years, though, I think that's stood up a little better. Now it's just you're losing games that aren't even to the likes of Ohio State. Trevor Maddich, ESPN College football analyst on game day, talked about, um, you know, how hot that seat is getting for Harbaugh. I think Harbaugh may have used up most of his mulligans. So I worry about that. I know that there has been a lot of goodwill towards him because he's a Michigan guy. He's doing his level best. Ohio State's really good, all that. But people are now looking at his offenses and saying, well, look, he's an offensive guy. These offenses need to be better than they are. And he's looking at the defense now that is also struggling. And so at what point can you look at Jim Harbaugh and this program and say they're getting better? At what point can you say, yeah, I have hope? Now, that's the big thing, is it's supposed to be about this great recruiting that we haven't really seen. It's supposed to be about getting wins against programs that are big opponents and big rivals, and that hasn't been happening. And the fight for Harbaugh and the cachet he came in with, the longer and further away from that you get, the harder it is to sort of defend not trying something new. Yeah, there's a couple of expectations, and I'm glad you mentioned recruiting, Sarah, because you think about that, and college football heads will always tell you that you know, recruiting really gives you a path to a national championship that you can go back and look at. So I looked 
at the recruiting rankings for Harbaugh versus Ohio State during his tenure, his average recruiting ranking during that time has been 14.6, around 15, versus Ohio State, which has been fifth. And then if you look even over the last few years, ranked number 22 class, then number eight, then number 14, then number eight. So they're not getting the same athletes. So now it becomes, if you're not getting athletes on par with what Ohio State's getting, can you develop those athletes? And we're also not seeing that happen. So at some point, you got to look at it and say, what's the coach giving you? He's giving you brand recognition, but he's not necessarily getting you a ton in recruiting, and he's not necessarily getting you what you need in developing. Why is he keeping his job then, other than the fact that the only thing worse than being bad is being irrelevant, and as long as Harbaugh's there, Michigan's not irrelevant. Yeah. That's so true. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're brought to you by My Computer Career Training for a Better Life. By the way, that call earlier in the segment from uh, Learfield IMG. Harbaugh, not the only person struggling after this weekend. Harbaugh on the precipice of perhaps being out. Will Muschamp is out. Paul Feinbaum on KJ&Z this morning on his firing. He was hired for one reason. Uh, Ray Tanner, the athletic director, five years ago, thought he had Kirby Smart. Kirby Smart uh, had sent signals to South Carolina that he was about to become the next coach there. Remember, he was at Alabama as Nick Saban's defensive coordinator. Georgia, his alma mater, picked up wind of that and made a very gutsy decision. They fired Mark Richt, who was popular and had a good record. They said, Mark, thanks, but no thanks. You're out of here. Kirby got the job, and Ray Tanner hired Will Muschamp. Give Will Muschamp credit for this much, Subin. He's certainly a failure as an SEC coach, but he could easily get a job uh, working for Goldman Sachs because he has now picked up uh, close to $25 million in buyouts uh, for being fired from, from Florida and now the University of South Carolina. So he's smart about one thing. Yeah, Steve Spurrier said almost the same thing. He told Michael Gillespie of ABC Columbia, well, he's not going away empty-pocketed. He knows how to get big contracts, I'll tell you that. Four years remaining on his deal, his buyout, $13.2 million. His record uh, in the middle of his fifth season, 28-30 and 30 at South Carolina, very similar to 28-21 and 21 at Florida. Uh, lots of money on his way out of his opportunities, Fitz, and also lots of well wishes from a lot of people. I will say that as soon as this news hit, tons of people who have been in Will Muschamp's orbit had really kind things to say about him, if not necessarily about his coaching. I don't know anybody in the college football realm that's covered Will that doesn't like him. I mean, just to be honest, and... Uh, the money that he's getting is absolutely huge. Uh, I know a lot of people tend to just gravitate towards fire coach, fire coach. And uh, I do want to take a second, at least acknowledge all the, you know, strength and conditioning and uh, team managers and people like that, that make far less than Will Muschamp will ever make, uh, you know, that, that, that are in a much worse situation because of the firing. It impacts so many families and lives. That being said, it is a valid point, and I think it's. I was the most surprising part of the look to me, Sarah, is that it is thirteen million dollars that South Carolina is going to have to pay, and I know it comes from an athletic budget, not a scholastic budget, but still, that just it feels like a gross amount of money in the middle of a global pandemic with colleges struggling everywhere, mm. athletics struggling everywhere, and you're writing thirteen million dollars out to just get rid of a coach, and you're going to have to pay the next coach a sizable amount to come in. I mean, it just re- reminds you that college football is held in its own little tower off to the side when it comes to the money. Yeah, at Celebrity Hot Tub, Brian Nani uh, with the perfect line, college football would be much funnier if athletic directors were personally liable for coach buyouts. And that is 100% the truth. I understand football brings in a ton of money, but the contracts they have to give these guys to get them, knowing full well that so many of them never finish those contracts and walk away with tons of money just to get the hell out, blows my mind every time. And to your point, Fitz, especially when 
there are entire programs being cut across the, the college landscape because of the pandemic. To think about that much money going to someone who failed and is walking away is is pretty gross, actually. Well, and, and I'll double down on that. I mean, in what other business can you make a $13 million mistake and not lose your job? And that's essentially yeah. what the athletic director has done, point. has made a $13 million. My bad, guys. Uh, we need to cook that off the books. I screwed up. 13 million gone, but I'm going to come to work tomorrow. Like, I can't imagine imagine that well, in any other job. The only other job where you can have massive failures and still keep failing up is to be one of those coaches. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Now we have a trade involving a huge name. It's Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, and Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. All of our guests join us on the Shell Penzo Performance Line. And uh, look, Sarah, this is a big trade. Chris Paul is now headed to the Phoenix Suns uh, for uh, basically four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, <laughs> and a partridge in a pear tree. A lot of moving pieces and to Kelly this. Oubre Jr. Right. <laughs> Kelly Oubre Jr. For most people, I think Kelly Oubre Jr., Ricky Rubio, <laughs> Names that are recognizable that the Thunder will get in uh, in in return for this, and then Chris Paul is part of what goes to the Suns. So this is a big deal. There are a lot of moving pieces because salaries have to match in the NBA. It gets very complicated. But Chris Paul headed to the Suns, and it's a sign that the Thunder are completely rebuilding again. Whatever they're doing there, this is the beginning of. To your point, uh, you said it's usually like a great movie trailer. That's when it's a whole off season. Uh, this is going to be like a really good TikTok, like a fire TikTok is all we're getting here for this very <laughs> short amount of time between now and the start of the next season. That's going to include the trade and free agency and, and the draft and everything else. Um, yeah. So so Chris Paul reunites with Monty Williams, who uh, coached for for one year when, when they were both in New Orleans. And Chris Paul's an interesting cat because I think before last season, a lot of us had kind of moved him into a category of used to be great and now is, you know, a, a, a good player who's who's often hurt. And he outperformed expectations. And you put him alongside Devin Booker, who is a star in the making, who has these explosive, massive games where you can really see um, what he can be and who already is, um, you know, setting records for the Suns. Uh, this is exciting. Uh, he has to stay healthy, Fitz, and there has to not be any sort of chemistry issues what we know about chris paul is some guys don't love playing with him and he's a very outspoken opinionated leader um so what does devin booker think about this is my team versus come join me and teach me what it is to be an all-star what it is to be a great long-term legend in the game um, that is going to matter a ton, how those two guys hit it off from the beginning or don't. Well, and I also think, as Kevin Pelton pointed out, as he broke down the trade on ESPN.com over on Plus, uh, I, one of the smart things about this is the way the payroll balances out. And it's rare. I mean, that's the money's always part of this issue. But uh, Chris Paul has a pretty substantial salary, but his $44 million salary gets off the books right at the time that DeAndre Ayton and Bridges, two, two of their young players, will be at the end of their rookie contract. So they've almost found this way to balance the money should their young guys continue to develop in a way where Chris Paul can come in. He can hopefully be a part that makes them better today, right? But as the young guys develop, when those guys can are in line to get paid, then they get that money off the books. It's actually a really smart way to balance your finances. So, well, go ahead. But also quickly, Fitz, you know, Chris Paul is known for being an incredibly smart player and also for having created a contract that benefited him, right? Um, that made it so that he was in control of where he wanted to be, who he played with, and 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 it was very smart of him. Um, that is part of the reason that he's been a mobile player because he's been able to facilitate trades despite the size of his contracts because of the way they're built. 
But also the fact that he moves so much is a question mark. Like, are you looking at him as a guy and saying, you know, he's been traded twice in 2011, 2017, 2019, 2020. Um, Does that make you look at uh, as a red flag or just a guy who very smartly constructed his contracts to contracts to be able to stay on the move and stay with contenders. I think it's a red flag. And, and look, I, I just – star players are so hard to come by and, and for every team across the board. When you get one, you do everything you can to possibly keep them. And you don't trade them unless you have to or unless there's some benefit that you're basically going to sell to your fans. Hey, even though we're losing this star power, we're going to get better in the long run. That's a difficult sell to make. And, you know, so it doesn't really matter the sport for me. I said the same thing about Jadavion Clowney, the fact that two organizations – essentially let him walk. Now, the Texans might be poorly run, but the Seahawks aren't, right? Like That's concerning to me, and now he's not doing anything with the Titans. And I'm not saying that Chris Paul can't do anything, but there is a level of if a guy, you find a way to keep the guys you absolutely feel like you have to keep in the NBA. So the fact that so many teams have had him for a little while, been like, you know what? This is good. It got us where we want to be. Now we're going to move on. Like, he's the very serviceable, like, he's the really nice girlfriend, but not the marrying type. You know, like, Ah, but that's the thing. I don't think he's the nice girlfriend. No, he's crazy, and everybody figures Figures it out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He, he's crazy bleep, but you look so. Anyway, you know how the rest of that song goes. <laughs> oh, that's think, probably a better analogy. Yeah, I think that's yeah. what we're going for here. Is like you bring a lot to the table, but uh, sometimes you're a lot to handle. That's what we've heard I was, in the relationships. You're right. I was more buying into like, you know what? You helped me get to a better spot in my right. life, and now I'm going to move on. But I think right. upon further review, you're right. Like, <laughs> yeah. it, it, She's hot and crazy, and then you yeah. eventually figure that out. You just got to break up with her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, on a much different platform, I don't even know how to transition to this, but uh, in NBA news also, there's the constant conversation about whether or not, uh, at this point, James Harden is going to end up with the Brooklyn Nets. And that becomes interesting because Jay Will, uh, ESPN, and you can listen to Keyshawn J. Will and Zubin in the mornings, have pretty strong words about what he thinks could happen if Harden ends up with the Nets and how far it could take him. James Harden, if he wanted to get to Brooklyn, could get to Brooklyn. Him, Kyrie, and Kevin Durant, regardless of whatever assets they had to give up, you would think that Sean Marks would be able to find complimentary pieces. If that happens, they would be the favorite to come out of the East. And I got to tell you, something else that happened the other day, a lot of people aren't going to talk about, Dennis Schroeder, going to that Los Angeles Lakers, which huge for the Lakers. It gives him another scoring Yay! threat. It gives him somebody that at times was the best player on the floor for OKC. That could be your NBA Finals next year. The Lakers, LeBron, AD, Dennis Schroeder versus the Brooklyn Nets, Kevin Durant, Kyrie, and James Harden. You buying that, sir? Well, first of all, it's Schroeder. Put some respect on that man's name. Nobody said <laughs> – oh, not nobody – Many people do not say his name right. And if we're going to talk about how he's a big addition and he brings so much to the table, uh, let's at least get his name right. It's Schroeder. As for the two sides, of course the Lakers are a big favorite to get back uh, to the finals again. And the Nets were already a really compelling team talent-wise if you believe that Steve Nash can get all those personalities and make it work. Adding Harden to the mix I think I tweeted out yesterday in all caps, do it for the content. Like, I just, I'm picturing the storylines coming out of that. It's real tough to trade an MVP candidate when they're near their peak. It's it's real tough to make that work. It's especially tough when you've got three superstars together. It sounds incredibly compelling and exciting. And if they were all the kind of superstars we saw Say with the Warriors, when Steph Curry was able to step back a little bit and change his role to facilitate 
hard um uh Kevin Durant arriving then I could see it being a powerhouse team but I'm I'm not sure based on what we've seen from Kyrie in the past and what we've seen from Harden how that's going to work well and I'll even say somebody tweeted it out yesterday but I thought it was a smart concept like do we really think that KD has worked this hard and given up this much to rehab himself to stand around and watch James Harden dribble? Like, right. I, I mean, that's just got to be... It would require James Harden to want to have a completely different role, and who knows if that's the case. And that's the biggest thing. Like, we have no idea what what he's expecting in a new offense, but if the concept is they're just going to go together and gel together like the Lakers did so quickly, I think that's, a, that's downplaying the difficulty of bringing a team with that many star players together that quickly. Not going to be easy, but you're right. For the content, I'm here for it. Give me, give me all the Brooklyn... I can get if it means Harden goes there because it gives us plenty of fun NBA to talk about. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We have to get into some other NFL stuff from the weekend. Uh, I'm sure I will keep you updated on the Bears and whatever the hell's going on over there. But let's talk some other uh, games. And we like to do that by doing a little hot take or good take. Or maybe it's good take or hot take. Either way, we hear some of our colleagues. Fitz, you're back. We hear some of our colleagues and we say whether their takes are good or hot. And let's start with the Giants upsetting i guess but who knows what we call it when things happen in that division uh the eagles and mike greenberg on greeny today saying the giants have their guy or is it a guy i believe daniel jones is a quarterback i think they've got it (laughs) i think they've got him if they find themselves in a position to trade back they should i don't think they will because there's only two quarterbacks in this draft people will kill themselves for and the giants are going to be not going to be picking high enough to get either one but my hashtag kod is for their quarterback because I think he's good. I think they have a quarterback. I think they just need a little patience. They got a coach who I think the team likes playing for. I'm impressed with what I see there. Don't worry about it. I just You laughed at the same time as me, Fitz, because he goes, I believe Daniel Jones is the quarterback. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that part that of up for debate? I mean, if we're going to say good take, hot take, the, the fact that Daniel Jones is a quarterback, that's, that's a good take. take. I feel like that's a good take. Uh, <laughs> but there were some hot takes in there, though. And, and look... <laughs> I, I do believe that, obviously, I think the Giants are going to go on a little bit of a run here, and the Giants are actually a pretty good football team with a quarterback they're not going to give up on too quickly. I, I mean, in the grand scheme of NFC East good. Uh, I don't think they're going to give up on Daniel Jones, but I do think he's sleeping on a third quarterback. Zach Wilson, who we had on the show last week, the BYU quarterback, by the, by the time we get to the draft, people are going to be putting him in the top five, and people are going to be tripping over themselves to get to him. So there will be other quarterbacks. So I think this is a mix from Greeny. It's a good yeah. take that he is a quarterback but it's a hot take that they're just going to be set where they are. Yeah, it'll be interesting because he obviously, he could scoot, he's got wheels, and they have so many other things that they need to fix on that team too, not just to recover from injury, but to shore up that I don't know if you are, are, are going for quarterback again when you're okay. You got a quarterback, as he said. All right, let's move on. Uh, Doug Peterson on the other side of that game, head coach of the Eagles, was on Sports Radio 94 WIP, and um, I just take a listen to this exchange. Who do you blame the most for the Eagles' 10-point loss to the Giants? 72% coaching. Interesting. Head coach of the Eagles, Doug Peterson. Hi, Doug. Good morning, Angelo. Thanks for the lead-in. I appreciate that. I'm sorry. I, that was just... That the, was awesome. I know. That really, that, hey, listen, that just puts me in a great mood today. <laughs> Doug, Already in a good mood. I yeah. appreciate it. I, I kind of felt you probably wouldn't be in a good mood. You Can did, I hang up now? No, no. Please don't, Doug. I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling my obligation right now. If I, I hang up, I feel my obligation. Doug, I fully understand. I'm, I'm Angelo. All right. What about, Doug? I'm I'm at myself. I'm at the way we played. And and it's just it, it frustrates me. It frustrates me to no end. And 
we have too much pride, and I have too much pride. These players have too much pride. We we work our off during the week. It's frustrating. It is frustrating, and um, blame it on me all you want. Don't I mean I'll handle it with the players. You can blame it on me. I'm a big guy. I can handle it. That's fine. Um, but this is we're we're still we're self-inflicting ourselves. We are killing ourselves. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. All those cliche little you know statements is 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 still showing up and. And it's frustrating. Uh, good take. Uh, say good take. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is. Like uh, good take. I mean, Doug Peterson <laughs> said, "Put it on me." Well, I, okay. I mean, I got no problem with that. The play calling hasn't been. You know, I, I keep saying this, but with Carson Wentz, who is obviously in a funk, and and look, I'm tired of trying to defend Carson Wentz as being better because he's played terribly this year. But at some point, if you got a shooter that's in a funk, you get the shots for him that you know is going to get him out of it. They've just not seemed to do that consistently with Carson Wentz, and so part of that has to go to the coaching. So, But also, uh, kudos to the host right there, because, I, I mean, I've been there when I was in Nashville, and we oh, had a weekly hit with uh, the Vanderbilt head coach, Derek Mason, who's a great guy. But sometimes after a tough loss, coach comes on, and you got to ask tough questions, and it's just – it's painfully difficult. Like, it makes my heart sort of uh, race a little bit just hearing him try not to get the coach to hang up on him in that moment. That's a that's a good job I by them. I just wish it had been a sponsored segment where she had to read that just before. Like, this week's Who Stinks? And your answer is Doug Peterson. Who Stinks? Brought to you by <laughs> Four Seasons Manure. <laughs> you know, he comes on. Uh, somehow this segment, Good Take, Hot Take, here on Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, turned into Eagles-Giants takes, but we're okay with that. A lot of takes coming in on that. And Mike Tannenbaum, former NFL front office exec, was on KJ&Z this morning and seems to think the Giants could take the top spot in a conference we kind of thought, well, is it, or a division we kind of thought would go to the, either the Cowboys or those Eagles. The headline coming out of the early games yesterday was coming into yesterday, the Giants were 26 in the NFL in opponent's third down conversion yesterday, Philadelphia did not convert one third down. To me, that's a great sign of coaching and Joe Judge fixing a problem. We just talked about the Packers and their run defense not getting better. Look at the Giants. Their third down defense, much better. So they're in the thick of this thing, and I give them as good a chance as anybody because they're improving. And if Daniel Jones doesn't turn the ball over, they really have a chance. And remember, they're doing this without their best player, Saquon Barkley. Is that a good take or a hot take, Fitz? Uh, I, you know what? I think it's it's a hot take that they still have a shot in the division. And I, I've gone back and forth with this one. And, you know, Devin, that uh, our buddy that produces with uh, Golik Jr. and Cheney, uh, is a big Giants fan. And he was texting me yesterday and saying, look, this team is a couple of plays away from being 5-5. Five and five. And he's not wrong. I mean, they have, a, a, they have a, sh- a lion's share of very close losses that are heartbreaking for them. But I keep looking at scheduling, and I think that matters so much this year. They still have to play in Seattle. They still have to play the Browns, and they still have to play the Ravens. Like, I just can't see how they don't have at least three more losses on their schedule. And 6-10, and ten, I don't think he's going to win this division. So that tie for Philadelphia that everybody sort of uh, poo-pooed in the moment could be the thing that saves them the division title alarmingly. Yeah, I think it's a good take, though, because as somebody who – so far, her only loss in this week's picks, she's been just crushing it. I'm, of course, speaking in the third person about myself. Uh, the only loss was when I picked the Eagles to do anything, even beat a completely de- debilitated Giants team. So I- I'm not going to say that no one else has a shot when the other options are the WTF, my new name for the Washington football team, the Giants and or the, the, the Cowboys and the Eagles. So I'm saying there's a shot. Uh, finally, let's talk a little bit more about that incredible Kyler Murray Pass and, and Clinton Yates had this to say about Kyler today and around the horn. 
and all the questions people had about him coming in the league all answered. He can make all the throws, he can win you the games when he wants, and he can avoid it with his feet. Okay, so my gut says, uh-huh, absolutely, totally. But my brain says, don't be a prisoner of the moment. Don't be a prisoner of the moment. Are there still questions about Kyler, including his size, that need to be answered that we haven't seen in in a short amount of time he's been in the league? No, I don't I don't have any questions left, but I also as much as we tip the hat for Kyler Murray in that moment, I'm gonna also give a tip of the hat to Cliff Kingsbury because I, I think in a offense that wasn't willing to sort of zig and zag to the strengths of Kyler Murray, I don't know that that would be as as he would be as good. I think Cliff Kingsbury deserves a lot of the credit here, just like I, I believe that Andy Reid deserves more credit for the development of Patrick Mahomes. I'm going to give that same sort of credit to Cliff Kingsbury and his willingness to let Kyler Murray get into a position where he can make those throws. So uh, kudos to the coaching, but I have no questions left of Kyler because of it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Some pretty good takes from our colleagues this week. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio. Let's try and have a conversation that's not hot takey, as we like to do on this show quite often, but one about somebody that seems to immediately ignite hot takes in Lamar Jackson. And, Sarah, I keep seeing the highlights run back from last night's game, and I watched uh, I watched it. It was eerie in Connecticut as there were tornadoes coming through. So it was weird to be watching that, knowing that a few hours away from, from where that game was play- being played, you could hear the it felt like the trees were going to land inside my house, right? So I'm watching it, and I'm just trying to figure out, you know, we, we love to just shift the narrative that, you know what, Lamar Jackson doesn't play well against big teams or in these big games or primetime games, whatever everybody wants to make it in the moment. I just don't know how much we can take about take away from a game in a monsoon. Yeah, I don't think much. Uh, you know, you you know me. I, I I've been kind of trying to look at those outcomes and and not make excuses, especially for Lamar and the Ravens who have looked a little bit flat. But in this case, what I saw was you know there were a couple things that you could take out of it. That the Patriots looking good on on the ground. Um, you know, obviously. Uh, there's some growth there from a team that looked completely dead in the water, but the weather to me made for missed catches, slippery ball. <laughs> this always happens at the end of the show, slippery balls mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and <laughs> penalties, things that you just aren't seeing normally. And so uh, I don't think that that's a game I'm going to look at and try to pull away uh, long-term issues for the Ravens. Well, and I, I almost laughed as I was watching the broadcast Early on, they were talking about the Ravens' ability to, you know, just look at what you you put out on the defensive side of the ball and then match that with their own formation that will top it was the early conversation. You know, they can go heavy and run on you or they can spread out and suddenly throw on you, right? Like, they were trying to give you all of these. And then later on, it became the liability for them for some reason. I, I mean, I don't think we can take anything away from the fact that the Ravens' offense is built a particular way. It's built to pound the ball. And uh, the minute the, the, the footing got so bad and the minute the Patriots were playing so strong defensively, they were going to have to mix it up. And I don't know that by design, not even just by Lamar Jackson, but by design of how the offense is run, I don't know that that's an offense predicated on the ability to mix it up. They're not the Chiefs in that sense. Mm. So they do what they do, and they do it well. And that was difficult to do last night in a monstrous storm. They set uh, an NFL record with 31 straight games of 20 points or more up until this game. Their fewest points since Lamar Jackson took over as their starting quarterback. And he was P.O.'d uh, in the postgame presser, not surprisingly. There's a lot of injuries, though. It's worth noting that um, Nick Boyle was carted off with a season-ending knee injury. This is just two weeks after they lost uh, left tackle Ronnie Stanley. 
Um, there's elements of, of this game that we kind of look over unless we're we're looking and, and we're and we're very um, uh, uh, specific, especially if we're watching like Red Zone and you're watching a couple games at once. Uh, be easy to notice that, uh, to to forget that the Ravens were missing four starters on defense because of injuries. Um, so with the weather and all the injuries and everything else, I'm not taking much from this. But Fitz, they are three games back now of the Steelers. Um, they are just six and three now. This is a team that lost fewer games than that all of last season. <laughs> so I, I, there is something to be said for trying to figure out what we've seen from them this year that we do think is indicative of, of who this team is, especially because we had enough doubts about them as a playoff team last year when they were 14 and two and Lamar was an MVP, not to mention what we would expect from them heading into a postseason this year with as many questions as we have about both Lamar and especially about a team that can't succeed when they get behind. Yeah, well, and you are right about that. Succeeding when they get behind is is absolutely it's a liability for this offense. And uh, the other thing that I think is important to point out is that as you as you mentioned, uh, because they're six and three at this point, and they are so far behind the Steelers, now they have put themselves squarely in the wild card conversation. What's difficult is that there are a lot of teams in said wild card conversation because right now the Colts, Raiders, Dolphins, Ravens, Browns. Titans are all six and three. And when you think about that, I think one of the more surprising things about the NFL this year is that we all thought the NFC was going to be really good and the AFC would be okay. It turns out there's a bunch of teams in the AFC that are playing pretty darn good. And if I'm looking at it from the Ravens Ravens standpoint, I don't want to get caught in some weird tiebreaker with five other teams trying to figure out how I can make the playoffs. So they do need to get it right and get it right quickly. Otherwise, they're going to miss out on the playoffs entirely. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.